I apologize for my voice. If you'll pray for me, I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. I want us to remember where we left off last week in our understanding of what's happening here and our desire to see how God would lead us. Last week we saw that God is sovereign, that God's sovereignty is the basis for not compromise. God is sovereign over all the kings and over all cultures. Babylon, under the, underneath the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, had taken over Jerusalem, had taken the the best kids, the best of the best, back to Babylon. Babylon had, had sought, or Nebuchadnezzar sought to assimilate these people into his culture, to change them, to make them like Babylon. There was temptation all around. As, as we read last week, there's the temptation of discouragement to think that God was not in control. And yet... These men purposed in their hearts that they would not compromise their lifestyle. We said that because God is sovereign, we can persevere without compromise. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, brought these men in and he changed their location. He changed their names. He changed their education. But these men refused to compromise on the level of living. They refused to compromise their standard. They refused to give in. And violate the word of God. It says in Daniel 1.8 that they purposed in their hearts not to defile themselves with the king's meat. They, they purposed in their heart not to break God's law that had been given to them. We ended by seeing how, how God blessed them for their obedience. How God strengthened them. How God exalted them in Babylon. Well, it doesn't stop there. It continues and and. And Daniel chapter 2 is an interesting uh, chapter. We won't go through it, but I'll summarize it for you. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, but he can't remember it. Have you ever had that? You knew something happened, but you just can't remember it? Well, he brings his wise men in and he says, I want you to interpret my dream. And they said, yes, yes, tell us what your dream was. He goes, I can't. You tell me what it is and you interpret it. They said, we can't do that. Nobody can do that. And so Nebuchadnezzar said, off with their heads. Everybody, we're killing everybody. This is, this is called draining the swamp, right? Okay, not, not quite the same. But he's going to kill all of his wise men. And Daniel goes before the king and asks for some time. He goes to his three friends. They pray. God reveals the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face. He starts worshiping Daniel because of this, and he exalts Daniel to be in charge of everything in the kingdom. Daniel then brings his three friends with him and gives them positions in the kingdom as well. And so it seems like they're living high on the hog. It seems like things are going very well. But today I want us to see that God's sovereignty is the basis for an uncompromising life. And then an uncompromising life is the basis for a, the experiential knowledge of a sovereign God. God's sovereignty is the basis for an uncompromising life, and an uncompromising life then is the basis for an experiential knowledge of a sovereign God. I grew up in a home 
My mom is here today. I grew up in a home and in a church that emphasized knowledge over experience. This meant that feelings were always placed on a much lower priority than objective truth. If the Bible said it, it doesn't matter how you feel about it, it's the truth. And I'm sure if you've been here long enough, you've seen that come out in the way that we teach here at Calvary Bible Church. In my Bible classes, if a student starts a truth statement with, well, I feel, my class knows that I'm going to shut them down and say, we don't care how you feel. Now, we do care, but we don't care. Feelings do not equate to truth. If we're going to make fact claims, if we're going to make truth statements, we need to be standing on something much more than our feelings. However, there's a danger in this. And the danger is that you can become a textbook that never walks out of the classroom to prove the truth in the textbook. Do you remember biology class and dissections? So as you, as you looked in the textbook, man, it was beautiful. It was laid out. Everything was right where it was supposed to be. It had colors in it and little arrows pointing to what it was. And then you cut it open, and it was all the same color. And, and it, was, it was a mess, and it stunk. And now, it wasn't the fact that the textbook wasn't untrue, right? But in reality, as you get into life, there is a, it's difficult. There are trials, there are struggles that make things difficult. And it is in those trials, it is in those trials that God meets us. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are headed from the classroom onto the dissection table. And so if you're with me, we'll look at Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was three score cubits, or 90 feet tall, and the breadth was six cubits, or nine feet wide. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes and governors, captains, judges, treasurers, counselors, sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. All those people were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before that image. Uh, and they stood, uh, sorry, they were gathered together in the dedication. And they stood before the Im image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried out, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages that in what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar king had set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, at the time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image, that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. We'll leave off reading there. Do you know six times it says that Nebuchadnezzar set this image up? Nebuchadnezzar, this was something that Nebuchadnezzar, it, it was personal. It was something that was to promote him. If you go back and read chapter 2, part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream was an image, and his kingdom was represented by a head of gold. And so Nebuchadnezzar here really is throwing off Daniel's interpretation of the dream. And he's setting up his own image, and he's worshiping this image. He wants everybody to come and basically worship him. 
He also throws his fist in God's face when he says in verse 15 to these three friends, he says, and who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hand? So here Nebuchadnezzar, king of the world, is, is standing before his great day where people are coming and showing him honor and him obeisance. And he looks at those three men who refuse to bow and he says, who do you think your God is? There's a few things I want us to notice here about the sovereignty of God. We said last week, the sovereignty of God is the basis for an uncompromising life. Well, there's a few things we need to understand about the sovereignty of our God. Our sovereign God is a personal God. He's a personal God. All believers in times like this, you understand this because there's been trials in your life, we are tempted to think that God is not personal. Wasn't this how Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden? He did not come to Adam and Eve in the garden and say, there is no God. But what did he say? Did God really say this? Did God really say not to eat of it? And he said, oh, we're not to eat of it or to touch it. And Satan said this, well, in the, God knows that if you eat of this tree, you will be like him. And what was Satan doing? He was downplaying the intimate love that God had for Adam and Eve by giving them an entire garden by walking with them in the cool of day and speaking with them. He wanted to downplay all of that. And he wanted them to say this, God is using his sovereign power to keep what is good from you. God, a powerful God, is going to keep from you what you really desire. Weak faith compromises objective truth for subjective feelings. Weak faith compromises objective truth we have a whole garden, and God said, don't touch the tree. For feelings, hey, it looks good, and it could make me wise. I don't feel that God is loving or present, and if he is, well, he must not know who I am or what I'm going through, or I must have made him really mad. Oftentimes, these are the thoughts that come to us in times of trial. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they could have rationalized their faith away when they saw the reality of the flames and felt the heat of the fire. That made sense to them. They could see it. They could touch it. And yet there's something more true than the fire. God's sovereignty. God, our sovereign God is a personal God, and he never compromises his intimate love for us. God gives no less thought to you and your struggles than he did to the three men that day before Nebuchadnezzar. Psalm 139. You know it, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. It says he knows our thoughts afar off. He knows when we lay down, when we get up. Verse 11, it says this. Surely if the darkness shall cover me, even night shall be light about me. In verse 12. Yea, though the darkness hideth, yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Think about it this week. God didn't miss a thought you thought, a word you said, a motive that you had. God did not miss any of that. He saw all of it perfectly. In fact, it was just like it was done in the middle of the day, right before him. But our sovereign God never compromises his intimate love. As you think about that, that God sees and knows everything about you, your motives, your thoughts, it is a fearful thing. But the writer of this psalm knows God, and when he comes down to verse 17, he says, How precious are your thoughts toward me. 
If I were to count them, they're, 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 I can't even count them. And when I awake, I am still with thee. Our sovereign God is a personal God. He knows us and he loves us. And he never sacrifices his sovereignty for his intimacy. And he never has to sacrifice intimacy for his sovereignty. God was not just thinking of Daniel and his three friends. There's a time that God actually references in Jeremiah. He references this very thing. Go to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, God is speaking and he uses this time in Babylon as a reference point. It says, for thus saith the Lord that, this is verse 10 of Jeremiah 29. For thus saith the Lord that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. And then these verses that we know well. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hear you. And you shall seek me and find me, when you shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord. Isn't this amazing? God actually had a plan for the children of Israel in Babylon. And his thoughts toward the children of Israel and Babylon were loving, kind, and gracious. We need to be cautious that we don't fall into the trap in trials that we think that our God, who is, well, if he is in control, he certainly doesn't love me. Because how could an all-powerful God do this to me? We need to remember the truth of God's word that says that his sovereignty never sacrifices his intimacy, his love toward us. But we do have to recognize this. God's sovereign love allows trials. God's sovereign love allows trials. We must be careful to understand that because God is sovereign, he knows what is best. This is the danger of the health and wealth gospel. This is why it is so false and so damaging. It takes the sovereignty of God and it perverts it with the fleshly lust of man. Instead of an all-knowing, all-powerful God directing the path of the ones he loves so much, man tries to make plans for himself and then seeks to employ the power of God to get it. And this is what that health and wealth gospel is. God, I want my way, and I need your power to get it for me. That is not God's goodness. That is not his sovereignty. He brings trials. He takes things from us because he loves us so dearly. If you're part of the health and wealth gospel, you've got to throw away verses in the Bible like, like Hebrews, which says, whom he loves, he chastens. In Romans, all, all things work together for good. In James, count it joy when you fall into temptation. Peter, don't think it's strange when fiery trials try you. You get to be a partaker in Christ's suffering. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in a life and death crisis, it would seem. However, for a Christian, it's never a life and death struggle. It's only life and life, right? Think about it. They were being threatened with their life, but what could Nebuchadnezzar do to them? Nothing. God is sovereign. God is in control. If we truly believe that God is in control, then we have to believe Romans chapter 8, which says nothing can separate us from the love of God. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ 
And to die is what? Gain. 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. What, what did these men stand to lose? What did they stand to lose? They could see the flames, they could hear Nebuchadnezzar's threats, and they could feel the heat. But don't forget last week's lesson. The sovereignty of God is the basis for an uncompromising life. Secondly, I want us to understand this. Understanding the sovereignty of God and the intimate nature of his love demands a logical response. If you put these together, that my God is in control and he specifically and intimately loves me, there's only one proper response. Look at, look at verse 14 of Daniel 3. Back to Daniel 3. And while you're turning, I'll try this. <clears throat> Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar spake unto them, this would be them, the three men, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready, that what time ye hear the sound of all those instruments, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made, well, but if ye worship not, ye shall be this same hour cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace." And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee at this time. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand. Now notice what he said there. He will deliver us out of thy hand. There's no question. By the way, did they know what was going to happen next? What were they prepared to do? They were prepared to die. But they said, this is deliverance because our God is sovereign. And because we have put our faith and trust in this God who is the giver of life, you can't take it from us. He will deliver us out of thine hand. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, it says, is full of fury. And the form of his visage was changed. Oh, he was trying to be nice to these guys, but now he's about to lose it. So he commands that the furnace be heated seven times hotter. I, I've thought through, what is, I don't know what this furnace looks like, but apparently it can be heated up. Maybe just with air added to it, I don't know. Apparently you have to walk up to get into it, and you have to come, you can see into it, and you can get out of it. So I'm not sure what a fiery furnace looks like, but... All right. And so he commands that they would be cast in. And what happens? The men taking these boys up to the furnace, they melt, they burn up. Which is interesting. Did, they, did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just keep going and, like, you know, dive in or something? I don't know. Verse 22, it says that therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame. A fire slew those men that took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Think about this. Rationalizing compromise is not logical in a biblical understanding of God's sovereignty. Maybe we should bow. It's not logical when you understand who God is. And when you understand God's love for you, 
Fear, however, causes us to walk by sight, and it makes perfect sense why nobody wants to melt. Fear causes us to forget the truth that we have been taught. Rationalizing compromise is to forget God's goodness. Isn't this why the children of Israel were in Babylon to begin with? They had compromised God's goodness. They had rationalized. They had, they had FOMO, the fear of missing out. They looked around and they said, we want gods like these other countries. And they had given themselves to idols. <coughs> Why do we compromise? Is it not primarily because of fear? Fear that I will step out in faith and, and God will actually let me fall. Fear that if I follow Christ and go all in, I will have to give up too much of what I love and enjoy. See, Paul was writing to Timothy. Timothy was a pastor at Ephesus, and he was having a difficult time. And, and he was struggling with the fact that Rome was oppressive against Christianity, and the Ephesian church actually didn't really like Timothy. And he says this, he says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God has given us the strength to live without compromise. Faith demonstrated in uncompromising obedience to God's command unlocks the power of God in a person's life. What is then, what is the only rational response to a personal, sovereign, loving God? What is the only response? Oh, it's actually given to us in Romans chapter 12, is it not? And it uses those words. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your... It's the only logical outcome if you think about God is sovereign and he does all things for my good and his glory. God knows everything about this situation and the future. And God loves me. When you bring those together, then then what are we supposed to do? We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Isn't this not exactly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They actually offer their bodies as a living sacrifice. Based on the mercy of God, their knowledge of His goodness and His sovereign control, based on their understanding that He will deliver them in one way or another, they present their bodies to be burned. They present their bodies as living sacrifices. By the way, they had kept their bodies acceptable unto God, had they not? Remember chapter 1? They refused to compromise. They refused to take what God had commanded them not to take. They would not bow. They came to this point of compromise, and they said, we will not bow. Instead, we will offer our bodies to be burnt. What is conformity to the world? That, that bowing of the knee, that giving in to fear, that, that living for another day. If I can just find a way to make it through myself, I'll be okay. That compromise, they refuse to do. They, they refuse to compromise God's perfect law. Obviously, bowing to an idol was a direct violation of God's revealed word. Well, they could have rationalized in their head, well, let's, let's just bow in body but not in heart. There's a problem with that, is there not? 
it still violates God's word. By the way, remember as we went through Psalm 139, you've searched me and known me, you know my downsitting, you know my uprising, you know everything about me. You know, the logical response at the end of that chapter is given. It says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is synonymous with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I am presenting myself to you, O God. Show me where I have gone wrong and help me to walk in obedience to your word. Lastly, then, the experiential knowledge of God's intimate, sovereign control is found in the trials of uncompromising obedience. Think about what happened to these young men. As they, uh, they did not know the book of Daniel. We read it and we know what's happening. We know what's going to happen. They lived it. They, they walked up to the furnace not knowing what would happen. They fell into the furnace not knowing what would happen. And I don't know what they were thinking when they were down in there, but it, I mean, I have dreams like this. You know, you've dreamed that you can like live underwater and swim and all that. And you're, I mean, these, these people are there. Well, what did they see? They saw the power of God. Because they have, would they have ever seen this if they had bowed? Would they ever have known this if they had eaten of the king's meat? It is the experiential knowledge of God's intimate sovereign control that we see and we live and we, 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 we know to be true by our own experience when we refuse to disobey God's word. Daniel chapter 3, verses 19 and following. I'm not going to take time to read it because I don't think my voice will make it all the way through. But they throw these men in the fire, and Nebuchadnezzar says, what is going on? Pull them out. And it said they bound them with their clothes and their hats and their tunics and everything. These guys were dressed up or something, and they bring them out. And it was a testimony to every person there because they could not smell even smoke on them. And when God delivers, he delivers completely. It was a fire of testing that these three men experienced what they knew to be true. You see, we can preach on Sunday, we can meet together, we can know up here what the Bible says, but do we know God because he's been there for us? Do we know God because we've taken steps of faith and found him to be true? Or is the Bible simply that textbook still? where we can read it, memorize it, pass a test. If nobody says anything on Wednesday, we'll pipe up with some kind of a testimony. Or is it something that we say, no, 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 this is mine. I've lived this. I know this. God in his goodness chooses to reveal himself in a very real way in the depths of trials. By the way, I know many of you give testimony to this, that through grief and through pain that you thought would destroy you or break you, your knowledge of the truth of Scripture and the joy of Christ took on greater meaning. It is simply, it is, by the way, this is not simply an Old Testament miracle. Remember a guy named Stephen in the New Testament? I mean, he made out way better than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? 
as he is being stoned for refusing to stop preaching, to refuse, he was refused to compromise, God gives him a vision of Jesus Christ in heaven. And he sees Christ, and then he's with Christ. That's way better. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to go back to work on Monday. Stephen was with the Lord. He delivered Stephen out of his struggles. God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. He has promised to never test us beyond our ability to endure without compromise. God has promised to hold us with his right hand, to never let us go. He's promised to bring us to himself perfected as a spotless bride. And that all sounds so nice. But I would ask you, do you know these things because you've actually lived them? Because you have experienced them. No, no, no. Our experiences don't make it true. But the experiential knowledge of God is found in the depths of trials as we, by faithfulness to God, refuse to compromise. This was Paul's testimony. Philippians chapter 3 is all about Paul and who he was. It talks about all his accolades as a person. And it comes to verse 7, and he says, All these things that were gained to me, I count but loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for one thing, and that was the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Paul was willing to sell everything he was and had so he would know Christ. And he says this, he says, All these are lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. But don't I count them as dung that I may win Christ. And then being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Then he said this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. Paul knew the experiential power of a sovereign God because he was willing to go through the fellowship of suffering and even be brought to death. Because in that, he found Christ. Didn't he say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9? He said, um, I, I, because of who God is, I glory in my weaknesses. Because in my weaknesses... I see the power of Christ resting upon me. It wasn't that, G, that Paul said, well, I'm, I'm just weak and that's God's fault. He made me that way. He says, I'm weak. And when I recognize my weakness and I submit without compromise to a sovereign, powerful God, that is when I am strong. Paul wanted to know more God more than anything that this world had to offer. And so he refused to compromise, and in that, he found the power of God. So I just ask you this, do you know God? Do you recognize how intimate God is in his control of your life, that he knows everything about you, that he has been patiently keeping you and, and, and calling for you and waiting for you, to trust and obey his word. If we would believe his word, we would live without compromise because it's the only logical response. If God truly is in control and God truly loves me, 
then I must offer him my body. Holy and acceptable, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. By the way, when we do that, we will prove God is perfect. We'll prove who God is. We will te- we'll test, if we could even say it this way, we test God's word and we show it to be true. Who would have thought that by the end of that day, Nebuchadnezzar would once again be on his knees. This time he's threatening anybody who would speak against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, and their God. I don't believe Nebuchadnezzar is a Christian at this point. I, don't, I think he's a polytheist. He believes in all sorts of gods, but he sees the true power of the God of the Jews. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this, As it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. I would say this, as you look at your own Christian life, if you think that it somehow is stale or stagnant, or you need something else, or, or it seems to grow weary, it is because you are not trusting in a sovereign and intimate God. Because if you would bring those together, you would not compromise and you would step out in faith in such a way that keeps life pretty exciting. Right? And in the struggles that you will face in obedience, you will face struggles in obedience, but as you face those struggles, there is where you will find God's word proven true, not for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not for Paul, not for David, for you. Do you know you're gone? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that as we think about America, the struggles we're facing as a culture, Lord, we know that you are in complete control and you are bringing about your gospel story. You are, you are bringing it to its highest point when Christ returns. Lord, as we think beyond our culture and we start thinking about our individual lives, whether it be our parents, our background, how we were raised, the things that have been done to us, as we start to use things to rationalize bitterness and hatred, disobedience and compromise, Lord, I pray that you would pull us back to your word and show us who you truly are. Lord, help us to, by faith, recognize that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called to be his children. Lord, help us as we consider that great love for us that you have said that that nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from your love. Lord, we thank you that Jesus taught that he is life. And though we may die because we believe in Christ, yet shall we live. And that whoever believes in Jesus Christ shall never, never die. So, Lord, help us then to make the next logical response where we give to you our minds, we give to you our hearts, and we give to you our bodies in obedience. 
to your revealed word. Forgive us for allowing our, our feelings or, or the improper thought processes of this world to, to constrain us and call us to compromise. Oh God, help us to stand forth, realizing that when we walk out in faith, we will find you to be a powerful and loving God. Thank you for what you do for us. Cause us to rejoice in who you are. Well, we ask these things for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.